hey, well, that'll teach us. We let people sleep in for a couple of Sundays, and then they get used to it. <laughs> wow. Hey, uh, yeah, Mark mentioned something about, you know, uh, the word working in my life and my heart. Um, I'm going to talk today about a, something that's not a new concept, of course, but a whole new awareness for me anyway and uh, about what Jesus teaches. Uh, last month, uh, you might remember that I reverted back to my adolescence with Mad Magazine. Uh, and uh, we're going to try this anyway. Uh, this month, we're going to go on to my childhood. Uh, some of you may remember the story of Chicken Little. This is a fable. It's ages old. And if you remember the story, in the fable anyway, uh, an acorn falls on his head, and he concludes that the sky is falling. And he gets excited, and he runs and jumps around and says this over and over. He convinces some of the other animals that the sky is falling, and they rush off to tell the world until they meet a wily fox who invites them into their, his den for safety. Now, my son-in-law reminded me that there's a new Chicken Little movie, or maybe there's several of them, I don't know. I think this is a picture from one of those movies. And uh, so I'm not going to uh, say anything about uh, the conclusion of the fable just because of the sensitivities involved. I'll simply say there were no sequels, okay? Uh, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later. Uh, last month, we started uh, a series on uh, worry and anxiety, how Jesus tells us we should not. Uh, and starting in Matthew 6, 25, it talks about how we should not worry or be anxious for anything. Uh, uh, and giving us the examples of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, how God provides for them. We're going we're to kind of overlap a little bit. We're going to start in verse 30 here. I think this is on your sheet, if you'd follow along with me where it starts with, but if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So we're going to start with the questions, what's the intent of this phrase, O oh, you of little faith? Clearly not a compliment. Uh, he's pointing out a lack of faith evidenced by worry and anxiety using the argument of comparing God's care for the grass with his care for his children. Pretty simple. But what does he mean by little faith? Well, it's not no faith. But it seems like it's a lack of enough faith. What's enough? Well, we'll talk about that. And finally, the question I really want to impose upon us today is, to whom is Jesus speaking? This gets a little personal here. Uh, we've got to consider for this, what are the different types of faith? Well, let's take a look at some of them. One of those would be misplaced or misdirected faith. We talked last month about how everybody has faith in something. 
Okay, you cannot live life without faith. Uh, some intentionally exclude the God of the Bible. We call these atheists. And uh, they make simply something else their God in which they have faith. And it might be, you know, science. It might be political powers. It might be philosophy, a worldview. And if I believe that I determine truth for myself, then essentially I am my own God. That's what basically a God is. It's the thing that determines truth. But it, this can also include uh, faiths in particular cult or a non-Christian faith as well. Others, and I suspect most people who would fall into this category, through laziness or neglect, simply live life as it comes, really not making any firm decision about God. They just don't think about it. They might be drawn in by a crisis or an evangelist or some other way through the Holy Spirit. But until that happens, they decide by indecision. We call that default that they are their own God or they have faith in themselves. Another one that gets a little closer is what we might call uncertain faith. Others are open to the possibility of God, or they may actually, farther down the road, they may actually have a desire to, to have a relationship with God. Or they may even, we, we sometimes call these people seekers. Uh, they may call themselves a Christian, but they have doubts. They don't know for sure that they're saved. Okay, And if you happen to think that you might be in this category by having some doubt, I urge you to seek out a person that you trust, somebody who not only claims to be a Christian, but walks the walk, and ask questions so that you may come to a security in your own faith. Read your Bible for yourself and be convinced that your faith is not the faith of your parents or your teachers, but your faith. John tells us in 1 John 5, that he writes these things unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. can't say this enough. If you're not sure, you may know. And I urge you to get that worked out. Uh, now, Jesus came to save the lost, and much of the Gospels are devoted to this category of people who are not sure or whatever their stage in the development is. But these are not the people to whom Jesus is speaking in this passage. There's another type of faith that we need to look at. And uh, in the Word, there's an apparent argument, uh, but a false tension between faith and works. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but James makes it clear that when faith does not result in good works, it's not even little faith. He calls it dead faith. Now, I'm not sure. He could be referring to fake Christians, or he could be referring to saved Christians who simply aren't demonstrating their faith, or both. Either way, this is not a good place to be. We know that. Finally, we have what we call saving faith. Now, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to his followers. These are the folks who can use the term, my heavenly father. 
And these became believers because they have what we call saving faith. The faith that most, if not all of you and I have. Now, going back to my question, if you remember, has it hit you yet? It is at this target group that Jesus shoots the arrow. O you of little faith. Now why? Now saving faith is essential to our eternity. We talk about it a lot, especially in regards to evangelism. It's, the, it's our key to heaven. However, what Jesus is saying here is that those who only have this saving faith and then stop growing in their faith there, really only have little faith. While this faith is sufficient to avoid an eternity in hell, it is not what He calls us to as believers. So back to this question, what is little faith? It is a faith that's concerned only about one sphere, one decision in life, the salvation of the soul. This faith is not applied to the rest of life. Some call this simply fire insurance. I mean, you get the analogy. Okay? This is the person who became convinced that she was lost in sin, that she knew she was undeserving of an eternity with God, just like the rest of us were. She understood that she could never satisfy the perfect justice of God uh, by paying for it by herself. And so she saw that Jesus came into the world to save sinners like her, and she freely accepted the grace of God through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross to pay for her sin and reconcile her to God. It was this faith in Christ that allowed God to save her from the fire of hell. And that's what we call saving faith. And this is huge, very, very important. However, If she stops there and does not grow in her faith, it's only fire insurance. Because it only addresses the initial question of salvation. If her faith is not increased, she's still vulnerable to live a defeated life with worry and anxiety, which is hardly different from what we see in most unbelievers. Now, she might avoid big sins, but she will likely be conformed to the world because her faith does not extend beyond salvation to the rest of life. She may even know and experience God as her heavenly Father, but she still worries about the basic necessities of life. Now, you might be thinking that I'm referring here to kind of marginal or second-class Christians. Now, I think what I'm talking about here, I think what Jesus is talking about is all of us. You see, look at it this way. Little faith is faith which does not grab hold of all the promises of God. Rather, it focuses on just a few or maybe just that one. Peter calls these promises exceedingly great and precious promises. And of those many promises, it is most likely that each of us has failed to believe some. Someone once said that the trouble with Christians is that they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They just don't believe Him. In other words, they accept His free gift of salvation, but they have a problem accepting His promises as to the everyday things of life. 
He's promised us that we'll never thirst or hunger if we drink his living water and eat the bread of life. And while little faith gladly accepts that free gift of salvation, it struggles to go beyond that to life in this world. And so we want to be as practical as possible as we can here in understanding the different aspects of faith. So we're going to take a look at what faith is here. First of all, faith is not something we just pull out on Sunday morning. Our faith should apply to every facet of life. The Christian life is one of integrity. That is, it is a seamless whole. It's not segmented. It's not one side of the secular, sacred dichotomy. Uh, Our faith should inform every decision that we make. And if we leave our faith in church at around noon on Sundays, that faith is a phony, disingenuous faith. And we see an example of this very faith among the disciples in Luke 8 when they became a little anxious about the sea overwhelming their boat while Jesus slept in the stern. And they cried out, Master, don't you care that we perish? And he said, where? Where is your faith? In essence, he was saying, if you have faith, Why don't you apply it to this circumstance? Secondly, faith is primarily, this may be hard for some of you to accept, primarily thinking. When one of little faith is confronted with trials, he allows those circumstances to depress, defeat, and deny him from the ability to think. We avoid this, of course, By studying God's Word and understanding its lessons and its logic, we are to look simply at His examples, the birds, the lilies, the grass, and think about how God treats them, and then we can see that He will provide for us and conclude from there how we respond and live among problems and crises. A picture that my son David picked up when he was working with the homeless in um, Hawaii was that Christians are either thermometers or thermostats. You ever heard this analogy before? A thermometer Christian is controlled by circumstances in life. So he's worried about food, clothing, and basic necessities. Uh, In the service, we had a saying that says, when in danger, when in doubt, run and jump and scream and shout. You know, which we would say sarcastically about somebody who is struggling. When a crisis hits, the thermometer Christian gets fretful. He runs around, uh, round and around, chasing his tail. Perhaps he gets furious, displaying red rising in his frustrated and concerned face. However, it can be more subtle than that. It might just be laying awake at night thinking about one concern or conflict. How many of you can confess with me that we've done that a bit? Okay? Yeah, it's, a, it's a problem. All right. A thermostat Christian is one who uses the promises of God to maintain self-control of her thoughts and actions. She not only learns, but she lives life trusting 
in those promises of God. This is a picture of Audie Murphy, as you can see. I don't know if you can see the, the small print there, but Audie was five foot five, weighed 110 pounds, too small for the Marines and the, and the Navy. But the Army took him, and he became the most decorated soldier in World War II. Okay, clearly a guy who was not controlled by his circumstances, who maintained his composure under extreme threat of death. And so a thermostat Christian is like that, not thrown for a loop when things go wrong, rather stands confidently on his promises. And that kind of Christian uh, faces the challenges knowing that God has something to teach, some plan that will be advanced by the adversity faced or the momentary lack of something. Now, let me balance here. Sure, we all have concerns, especially for our loved ones when there's a problem. That's natural. Nothing wrong with that. However, when that concern starts to consume our thoughts, it can subtly become worry and can control us. So in short, faith is something. Faith is connecting our thoughts to God's Word through thinking. Little faith is the failure to think and instead to allow life and its circumstances to master our thoughts. Thirdly, faith is taking the promises and principles of the Word at their face value. When challenged, faith takes us to God's instruction book and causes us to believe that it is true. Our nature, sin nature that is, and Satan try to convince us that these words in the Sermon on the Mount are meant for only the disciples or only for some future kingdom. But a faithful believer looks for every application that can be made from that instruction book because he knows that God does not change. The 75-cent word is immutable. He's the same today as he was 2,000 years ago. And his promises his instructions and his commands are absolute and timeless. Finally, faith is understanding the implications of salvation from the perspective of <clears throat> the Father. <clears throat> Throughout the Word, we see doctrinal statements about salvation followed by a therefore, which indicates a logical conclusion. Here, Jesus admonishes us with examples of God's care for lesser things, then reminds us that He's our Heavenly Father, and therefore, how can we worry about His care for us? In Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, Paul prays that believers, these are people who have saving yet little faith, would have their eyes of your hearts enlightened. He wants them to understand so he reasons with them logically. But for what purpose? He goes on to say that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Now we talked last month about a fortiori arguments. In other words, arguing that if we can believe something that's harder to believe, we can believe something that's easier to believe. And Paul makes off-worthy arguments all over the place in, in Romans 5 and 8 to help us see that God is our Heavenly Father. Here in Matthew 6, 
Jesus points out that God provides for the grass to grow. We see that every day, at least in the summer. Even though the next day and those days it would be thrown into the oven and burned up. So, if that is so, a fortiori, he will provide for us. And he wants us to think on, to dwell on, to meditate on things that will establish in our minds and hearts that God is our Father. So let's take a look at some of those. God has unchanging purposes for his children. You know, as children, we have our names written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. We are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. We are separated under Christ. We are sanctified. We are set apart by the Spirit. And that should add a whole bunch of comfort. Secondly, God has great love for his children. First John 4, you'll read, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Third, God has great concern for his children, just like we do for our children. He knows every detail. He has numbered the hairs on your head. And he, if he's concerned for the birds and the grass, why should we worry about his concern for us? Finally, God is mighty. You know, he created the universe, so I think he can probably take care of us. Uh, in Psalm 46, if you take a look at it, you'll see example after example of his unlimited power. But near the end of that psalm, you see this oft-quoted statement, Be still and know that I am God. Right? Well, you know, if you were to Google that phrase and put in, I want a picture of that like I did, you come up with hundreds of pictures of serene Hallmark card-like images with those words in front of it. And this is the one that, that I, only one that I could find that even comes close. You see, by that time in the psalm, he's not telling us to be quiet and, in, and contemplative. He's talking to unbelievers and he's saying, give up, give in, be silent, you unbelievers, and know that I am God. Not exactly as we kind of feel that verse. It is this Almighty God who is caring for us, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power, the faith at work within us. So in summary of our discussion on little faith, Jesus calls us to recognize that it's not enough just to say we have faith, we must trust the promises of God and then apply that faith to our lives and then relate it to all our circumstances of life to the point that we're not worrying, we're not anxious, we're not consumed with worry about anything. Yeah, salvation's the big one, okay? It's the most important decision we make in life. However, if we stop thinking and trusting after we're saved, we will likely leave impotent lives of worry that will make us pretty much indistinguishable from the lives of unbelievers. And while it may be unintentional, 
the man or woman of little faith only is in fact neither trusting nor honoring the God who saves. Now, after that brief introduction, let's start. Okay, let's go on to the positive part. What do we do to achieve greater faith? Okay, uh, if you're reading along on your, on your, your thing there on the, on the passage, it starts in verse 31 with one of those, therefore, signifying a logical conclusion. He's saying, in effect, in light of all this, of all that I've said, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? Now, if you were to remember back in verse 25 where he starts this, this, this passage, uh, there he says, I say to you, do not be anxious. But here in verse 31, he says, do not be anxious, saying, how will I eat, what will I drink, what will I do when the sky falls? All right? Now, this is subtle, not a big doctrinal point. And I certainly didn't notice it before, but there is a difference here. In this latter statement, he seems to be saying that, yeah, you may have concerns, but faithful Christians do not blurt out their concerns immediately. You know, when crisis hits, it might be a better idea to take a step back, take a deep breath, and instead trust the Father and avoid panic. And by all means, do not spread your concern to others. I know in a fire you've got to do it quickly. But in general, we usually have some time to think. We are just too impatient to do that. God is showing us here a positive way to increase our faith. Again, he's very, very logical with us. He wants us to understand. So he gives us three main principles that we want to get today to lead us to greater faith. And the first is, after all these things do the Gentiles seek. My, apologize, my apologies to Leo, whatever his name is. I just couldn't find any non, other non-cheesy pictures of people seeking after the world. Okay. Um, this is a very simple negative with a profound positive message. Jesus says here, to increase faith, one must first understand that to be worried about the basic necessities of life is to be just like the Gentiles here. Okay? Now, Gentiles is one word pretty much synonymous with pagan or heathen, as opposed to the Jews who were God's chosen, who were entrusted with the oracles of God. The, the heathen had no knowledge of God or of salvation. They don't know the promises of God. They're essentially without God in the world. And we should not expect them to act as if they have God. Now, the pagans, Gentiles, whatever, they tend to look at life in one of two ways. Either life is all an accident without design, purpose, or reason, and we call this accidentalism, okay? Or it's the opposite. You've heard of que sera, sera, what will be, will be, okay? And this is sometimes called fatalism. In other words, everything is predetermined by some unknown power called necessity. And there's nothing that anybody can do about life, okay? The biblical view differs from both of these in that it holds that there is design and purpose in life and that purpose is controlled not by blind necessity. Rather, certain things are certain because they're in the hands of a loving, merciful, and living God. We sometimes call this the doctrine of certainty. But within this biblical view, we all make decisions. 
Hard to understand, I know. The proverb tells us that as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And our fundamental view of life is disclosed by the way that we live and react to circumstances. Crisis tends to sift people. A Gentile pagan or heathen has little concept of eternity. And we see this in the Greek mythologies, you know, about eternity. It's always something that's uncertain. Nobody ever knows for sure. So, the Gentile will cling to this world and try to anticipate the accidents of life or evade the the fatalism. And he'll live life with gusto. He'll eat, drink, and be merry. He'll live for today, squeeze all he can out of this moment. He has little concern for eternity because now is all that he knows. After all these things do the Gentiles seek. But the question I have for you and me is, do we appear any different? Some Christians are rock solid on their salvation. They know it for a fact. But they have a heathen view of the basic necessities in life. Their joy is determined by whether they have or do not have stuff. So let's ask some questions of ourselves here. When trials come, how do I react? Am I beset with worry and anxiety, or am I trusting the promises of my Father, whatever happens? Is my reaction any different than what I see unbelievers doing? In Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you salute your brothers only, what do you more than others? In other words, Christians are to be different, not the same. And whenever something happens to us, we are to view it in the context of the whole of our faith and respond accordingly, not just out of our instincts. So, if a belief, if an unbeliever is harmed, he might get angry, he might become sensitive, he might become bitter. But if a believer is harmed, she should consider the context of how God relates to her, and she might see some connection in that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Okay? You see, whatever the reason, God knows, and there is a purpose for everything that happens in our lives. Another question, is it evident to me and to everybody else that I am different from unbelievers? Or do we just try to fit in? Uh, Do my reactions to circumstances of life demonstrate that I am a follower of Christ? Jesus makes clear here that we're to watch what we do as well as what we say, especially in unguarded moments, especially when there's something pops up suddenly. We are to exercise discipline, control, gravity, and trust because we see everything in the context of our Father's will and eternity. And this, again, is one way to increase our faith. Uh, The next principle that Jesus provides to increase our faith is a repeat of what he's told us several times that we should have an implicit faith and reliance upon God as our Heavenly Father. He's omniscient. That means He knows everything. He knows us inside and out. He sees everything, and He knows everything that we need. 
Hebrews 4 puts it like this. No creature is hidden from his sight. He's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He knows when you're ill. He knows when you suffer pain or bereavement because of loss. Every single heartache, he knows. And because he knows, we know that we are never alone. We need never worry. We know that he is our father. And he never leaves us. If you were to take the care, love, and concern of a very, very good earthly father and multiply that by infinity, we might have some concept of God's care and concern for us and his love for us. So it's essential that we all believe on him. But if you wish to increase your faith, you must believe him when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Finally, the third and final principle here, we are to concentrate on growing, developing, and perfecting our relationship with our Father. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now, I may be wrong here, but it almost seems like Jesus has a bit of humor here at the end of chapter 6. You know, he's been telling us all the reasons we shouldn't worry. Now it's kind of like he's saying, it's almost like he's saying, well, if you cannot stop worrying, I'll give you something to worry about. Worry about your relationship with your father and his kingdom and his righteousness. You know, the unbelievers, they worry about the temporal stuff. You need to worry about him and his kingdom. Jesus says this with emphasis. Seek first. That means to pursue with intensity above all else. It's the first priority. You see this in our prayers. The Lord's Prayer doesn't start with, give us this day our daily bread, but rather, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You see, our relationship with Him comes before even our own survival. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Well, let me be clear. It does not mean this is how you to become a Christian. Rather, it's how you behave because you are a Christian. Last week, Mike talked about the kingdom of God and how that's an ambiguous term. It's, it's hard for people to grasp that. Uh, so let's see if we can clarify and make the conceptual connection with what Jesus was teaching then. In the King James Hebrews 11, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he, comes, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What does it mean to seek him diligently? Well, we're all here on a cold morning, you know. Uh, isn't that seeking him diligently? Well, does Jesus just call for 75 minutes of Diligent seeking. Um, a faithful believer takes and makes time to seek him diligently daily. Yeah, daily. Paul sought him diligently and was able to say, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, while... We look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Notice that Paul seeks even while or during his temporal afflictions, his own suffering. He puts it a little more concisely to the Colossians. He says, set your minds or your affections on things that are above, not on things on the earth. So, to seek the kingdom of God means to seek him diligently, which means to set your affections on things above. However, this is an incomplete picture as true as it is. It's not enough just to seek the kingdom by setting your affections on things above. He adds the words, and his righteousness, which means a life of righteousness. And that takes us back several, maybe a couple of years to the Beatitudes where it says, Though blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And we learned at that time that hungering and thirsting after righteousness is to be, to live like Christ. And if you follow this logical chain here, Christ wraps it all up and he says effectively, if you want to be like me, if you love me, then keep my commandments. And to keep them, of course, we've got to know them. And to know them, you know where I'm going. We've got to read our Bibles, don't we? Yeah, it's all very, very logical. So the more righteous or Christ-like we become, the greater will be our faith and assurance and our reliance on God as our Father, rather than the seen things that the Gentiles seek. This will increase our stability and decrease our worry. So the Christian who knows God as his Father, who sets his affections on saints, on things above and to and who thunger, hungers and thirsts after righteousness, not only has greater faith, but he's got a definite, specific promise. Because he says, all these things will be added unto you. These are all the things that the Gentiles worry about and seek. And they're thrown into the bargain just because we don't worry. Isn't that amazing? To sum up, if we put our faith in the Father, His kingdom, His righteousness, first with Christ-like lives, we have a promise from the lips of His Son that all we need to accomplish His plan for us will be provided. And this is how we increase our faith. There's one more type of faith that we haven't talked about, and it comes from a very, very unlikely source or example. Who was it who physically nailed Jesus and hoisted him up on the cross? The Romans, wasn't it? And we sometimes say, no, the Jews arranged all that. Well, true. But ultimately, we know that the people who put him on the cross is us because it's our sins that caused him to have to be on the cross. But there's a story recounted in both Matthew 8 and Luke 7 about Jesus' healing. And then a Roman centurion comes to him and he has a sick servant. And he said, Lord, would you heal my servant? And Jesus said, yes, I will come. And he says, no, 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 no. I am not worthy to have you in my household. But I am a man under authority. 
And I understand all you have to do is say it and he will be healed. Jesus turns around and he says, I have not seen such great faith. No, not in all of Israel. So if a Roman centurion can have great faith, why can't we? I want to close with a very, very familiar passage, at least since Chariots of Fire, Isaiah 40. And add just a little bit here to help us understand it from a little different perspective. Starting in verse 27, if you're following along. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. I would say those of little faith. And to him who has no might, he increases their strength, their faith. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, their faith. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So the final question is, what will it be? What will you and I be? Chicken little faith? Or soaring eagle with great faith? Father in heaven, You have given us everything we need. Why are we so unfaithful when we doubt? Lord, work in us. Help us to read Your Word seriously and to look for Your intent. To reason with You and understand how You desire for us to comprehend Your truth and Your promises. Help us to see that those promises give us every assurance. We don't know whether we're going to live for 50 years or 50 minutes. But we know that you know what your plan is for us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be with us right now. And that you would continue to work in and through your word, your Holy Spirit, to give us not just saving or little faith, but greater faith, and perhaps, Lord, great faith. Thank you, Father, for being with us today. And please continue now as we worship you and come to you in remembrance of that sacrifice that was made for each one of us. It's in the great Savior's name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?